thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to thank the Society for hosting this conference and for having it in New York, which is just 20 miles away from where I grew up. And uh, so New York is kind of my home city, not my hometown, but my home city, so it's good to be here. Um, so let me just begin by saying that my paper, was, which is called The Levels of the Soul and the Levels of Time, um, will begin uh, with a subject that may seem outside of Ibn Arabi, but hopefully I will have tied it in successfully. Um, so let me begin. Uh, physics used to teach us that space is a kind of absolute container, separate from the flow of time. In this classical or Newtonian conception, objects travel through or remain stationary in space, which itself was not subject to change or to internal variations. The three dimensions of space were the same, always and everywhere. Galileo's observations of the moons of Jupiter led to the fundamental assertion, so damaging to the prevailing Christian cosmology of the time, that in fact the laws down here on earth and the laws up there in heaven were the very same. Our space, as we experience it on earth, according to its inviolable coordinates of width, height, and depth, or the famous X, Y, and Z of the Cartesian coordinate system, exists uniformly throughout the universe and is governed by the same rules. With the dismissal of the ether, or the fifth element the celestial spheres were thought to be made of, and the adoption of an atomist theory, the physical vision of the universe in the classical conception was one of billiard balls colliding in a uniform and static vacuum, with things like electromagnetism and thermal energy thrown into the mix. In this conception, time was a measure and nothing more, and was itself assumed to be constant and unchanging. One used time in frequency and velocity values, but time itself had nothing essentially to do with the nature of space, and certainly nothing to do with physical objects themselves. The great paradigm shift in physics came with Einstein's special theory of relativity, which was later to be expanded upon in his general theory of relativity. In addition to showing that there is no absolute frame of reference for physical measurements, the theory also demonstrated, mathematically, that what we ordinarily think of as space and time are actually intertwining realities, or two aspects of the same reality. How we move through space changes how we move through time, at least depending on the point of observation. If I travel from Earth for a period of time near the speed of light, the theory goes, and then return, a much longer period of time will have elapsed on, from Earth's frame of reference than will have elapsed from my own frame of reference having traveled. Time also changes depending on how close I am to a strong gravitational field. A clock in orbit high above the Earth, for example, will run slightly slower than an identical clock on the surface of the Earth. Now, many books have been written in the last few decades claiming that the teachings of Eastern religions such as Buddhism and the findings of modern physics, specifically quantum mechanics and relativity theory, are really the same, and much is made of the spiritual significance of this new physics. Though it is a topic for another forum, I believe that the perceived intersection of physics and mysticism, or religion, results from a sublimation of certain hypothetical assumptions of physical data on the one hand and the denaturing of the spiritual doctrines on the other. That is to say, certain interpretations of the physical data, such as the idea that the observer influences the state vector collapse and the notion of multiple universes arising out of the actualization of wave functions of particles, are nothing more than philosophical struggles on the part of physicists and laymen to come to grips with the data. They are not demanded by the data themselves, which is why many physicists who agree on the same data have sometimes wildly different notions or models for accounting for those data. On the religious side, one comes across pat explanations of spiritual doctrines taken out of their traditional context. 
and Buddhism is reduced, for example, to a group of clever insights about our mind and about the nature of the world. Thus, I want to be careful of including the findings of physics in a paper on the experience of time and non-time at a conference on Ibn Arabi. I may joyously proclaim that Ibn Arabi told us in the 13th century what physicists claim to have discovered only a few decades ago. But what happens when the scientists change their minds? After all, despite what the popular literature and movies tell us, there are, enum- there are enormous lacunae in physics. And for all we know, the spatio-temporal conception ushered in by Einstein may one day itself be overturned by something as radically different. Recall that Newton retired from physics because he thought he had discovered everything important. To give you some examples, quantum mechanics works for very small things, and relativity works for very big things. But at a certain point in between, for medium-sized things, as it were, the theories become incompatible. This was the problem, or the similar problem, with Newtonian classical physics. For many purposes, the theory worked just fine. But physicists were puzzled because it did not work for all observed phenomena. Thus, Newtonian, Newtonian equations will correctly predict how a baseball will travel through space, but it took relativity to correctly account for the orbit of Mercury. Our present idea of gravity and the mass of the universe should have the universe flying apart, but since it does not actually do so, physicists posit dark matter, which accounts for, now listen to this figure, 98% of the mass of the universe. The problem is since we cannot see or measure this dark matter, we do not know what it is or really if it's there. So why start a discussion of time in an Ibn Arabi society gathering with physics? Firstly, despite the fact that classical physics is part of history as far as scientists are concerned, its worldview still dominates the consciousness of the age. It is what is most typically taught in high school textbooks, and its assumptions are built into popular language about the subject. The next time you hear someone say, fundamental building blocks of matter, know that such a notion is completely classical in its origin. All our notions of mass, force, and energy are usually classical conceptions, which is to say conceptions beginning from the bifurcation of the world into measurable and subjective knowledge by Descartes, followed by Galileo's uniformity of the universal laws, and finally Newton's brilliant synthesis. Moreover, these ideas, together with the advent of the heliocentric model, was a major force, and perhaps the major force, uh, that, that which sidelined Christianity in the Western world. First, the church abdicated its claim to having knowledge of the natural world, and, when it fi- and, and while it spent the next few centuries in the domain of moral and spiritual questions, scientists gradually reduced the world to physical bits, reduced man to a hyperdeveloped animal, reduced animals to complex arrangements of atoms, reduced consciousness to complex patterns of synaptic act- activity in the brain. Meanwhile, the philosophers and pseudo-philosophers of scientism were busy trying to convince themselves and everyone else that truth was provided only by quantitative measurement. The rest was quality, which, was, which fell on the side of subjective feeling. And as we are all supposed to know, or were supposed to know, feelings are really just complex instincts, which somehow result from the structure of the brain, resulting from the structure of DNA, resulting from the happenstance arrangement of atoms. Relativity theory and quantum mechanics overturned classical mechanics, which had itself overturned Christian cosmology. The paradigm shift ushered in by such figures as Einstein, Max Planck, and Niels Bohr is important because it destroyed the destroyer. What do I mean by that? Heliocentrism was erased because from the point of view of relativity, it is nonsense to say that the earth goes round the sun, just as it is to say that the sun goes round the earth. 
because there's no fixed frame of reference to say which is going around which. The sun's gravitational field is stronger than the earth's, but the earth does pull on the sun, and because there's no absolute frame of reference anymore, then certainly it is correct to say that the sun goes around the earth. Geocentrism actually comes out slightly ahead, since it at least corresponds to our experience from our frame of reference. From the point of view of science, however, we have lost both geocentrism and heliocentrism. That's from the point of view of science. As for the idea of universal laws, we find that things do not behave the same everywhere. For example, a clock seems to run at a different speed high above the earth. Light does not always travel in a straight line, but seems to bend from different points of reference, because space itself seems to bend and take on all sorts of shapes depending on the objects in it. Then we discover that atoms are not mere little balls. Rather, it seems only, the only way we can properly describe what seems to be happening on a very small scale is through various kinds of mathematical form, very unlike a little ball. The only reason scientists talk about wave-particle duality is because the measurements they get look sometimes like a particle, sometimes like a wave. But they never have, nor ever will see, what causes those measurements. The relationships between the atoms, quote-unquote, is mathematically incredibly complex and is more like threads in a tapestry than balls flying through space. But, of course, they are neither. The problem is further complicated by Bell's theorem, which shows entities like electrons and other particles to be connected, so far as we can tell, instantaneously, even at distances too great for a light-speed communication to take place. That's important because relativity theory states that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Thus, the momentousness of heliocentrism, atomist theory, the uniformity of spatial laws and time was shown to be not so momentous after all. But... This is lost on popular thinking. Einstein certainly earned his own fame, but did not manage to steal all of Newton's thunder. The most usual understanding of the natural world is still a classical one. But I have already cautioned myself about too great an enthusiasm for what the new physics teaches. Indeed, it may be that the current paradigm is overturned, but it seems well-nigh impossible that any such revolution will bring us closer to the classical conception that destroyed Christian cosmology in the West. We have already pushed the limits of what we can actually observe with our senses, with our faculties of perception. Which is to say, anything else we observe will be the effects of experiments, together with the mathematical models based on the data of those experiments. Physicists' eyes are not more powerful than our own. Their insight comes through the mathematical form they derive from the data. Such mathematical models are the very stuff of physical theory. The significance of this is not that it elevates one theoretical model above another, but that it shows, but that it throws into sharp focus the fact that any model of what happens beyond the perceptible world is as good as any other from the point of view of science, so long as it correctly predicts the data. The problem with superstring theory, hidden variable theory, many universe theory, and all these other kinds of theories that sometimes you hear about uh, coming out of physics is that they are all mathematical models based upon the exact same body of data, and they all predict the data equally well. These models are sometimes so wildly different that any pretense to some one great scientific conception of the universe must be seen as philosophical hubris. The precision of the data themselves and the success of the accompanying mathematics in predicting the behavior of the physical world on small and large scales, indeed this is the most successful scientific theory to date, paradoxically, serves to undercut the assumption that the only real knowledge we can have of things is through scientific measurement. What we are measuring are things we can never perceive without a measurement, 
Classical mechanics usually dealt with ordinary scale objects. If the real knowledge we have of a baseball, so bifurcation teaches, is not really our perception of it, but the measurements we make of it, we are still left with an object that at least corresponds to an object we actually experience, even if that experience is merely subjective or even meaningless from the point of view of science. An electron, however, is an entity no one has, can, or ever will experience. Even if we never perceive a unicorn in fact, we could in principle. The key reversal at play is the following. We measure quantum entities, but our knowledge of them is mediated completely by our ordinary experience of the world, by our pointer readings, as Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein once remarked. I said that the new physics paradoxically undercuts classical bifurcation because it leaves us with the troubling proposition that our true scientific knowledge depends for its very survival and existence upon the offices of our subjective, non-scientific experience. Actually, this was the case with classical mechanics as well. But the fact that quantum entities are wholly unlike ordinary entities makes the rigid bifurcation, it makes the rigid bifurcation into a subjective world of quality and an objective world of quantity all the more absurd. So the situation we are left with is this. The revolution of classical mechanics suffered a counter-revolution, the new physics, which neutralized the sting delivered by the heliocentric model, by uniform space and time and by the classical atomist theory. Though this counter-revolution did not put traditional cosmology back in its place, it robbed the scientist of his ability to make absolute statements about what we can know. A man might be lulled into a kind of complacency about the baseball. Perhaps the knowledge provided by scientific measurement is more true and reliable than his mere experience of the thing. This may not hold up to philosophical scrutiny, and it doesn't, but overlap between the measured baseball and the baseball as one sees it gives the whole affair an air of respectability. But when the scientist tells us that true knowledge consists in measuring things that we cannot see, and that the scientist cannot see either, it begins to sound too strange to be believed, and of course it is. So unlike many of the popular ideas linking new, the new physics to, to, to traditional metaphysics, my assertion here is simply that science has exposed the fallacy of Cartesian bifurcation and the alleged supremacy of quantitative knowledge. Science has turned on itself, or more correctly, the data has betrayed philosophical scientism and exposed its limitations we have quite literally come back to our senses. If we p actually pay attention to the difference between quantitative data and physical theory, we see that science has altogether lost the destructive power to make us denigrate our senses and the ideas we form from sensory experience. We know that what the scientist says about time is a model based on observations of the world and that any number of such models possess equal validity and all of them are subservient to real experience, to the real experience of the human subject. Choosing one model above another is not a scientific decision, but a philosophical one. Time, like space, is one of the most concrete aspects of our experience of the world. It is not an abstract entity such as an electron, but a reality so close and intimate that we stumble in defining it owing to its sheer obviousness. It is a mystery that baffles due to its clarity, not its obscurity. If a physicist says that time is not what we think, but is actually this or that, we can agree in part and acknowledge that the reality may have aspects of which we are not aware. However, we always possess the powerful rejoinder that no matter what the data or theory, 
It has been formed on the basis of the physicist's ordinary human experience of time and observations taking place within that experience. Logically, it is impossible to negate the qualitative time of our own experience without undercutting the basis of the quantitative time derived through measurement, since no observation is possible without ordinary space and time. Reification, this word reification is the problem we get when we put our theories of quantitative time above qualitative time in our hierarchy of knowledge. I may give a mathematical description of time utilizing perhaps a symbol uh, or an allegorical use of uh, geometric shapes, but then become trapped in my own provisional model. Even the word linear, in linear time, the phrase linear time we always hear, that's, this is a model. We make an analogy of some property of our experience of time to the properties of a physical line in space, i.e. being continuous and existing in two directions. But time is not a line. A line is a line. Having used the image of a line to enable us to talk about time in a scientifically useful way, we get trapped by an image which has taken on, as it were, a life of its own. Then anything other than linear time begins to seem absurd, a violation of time the way a loop is a violation of a line. The Cartesian bifurcation, which elevates quantitative measurement and theory while denigrating the real experience of qualities, is ultimately absurd because no model because no model can repudiate the model maker and continue to remain meaningful. It would mean that the model maker's knowledge of what he is making a model of is dependent upon the knowledge provided by that very model itself. A bifurcationist physicist discerns a mathematical form in the data of the world, then says that this mathematical form is more true than the very perception he used to discern the mathematical form. If by this he meant that the world manifests laws present in the intellect or great spirit, we could agree, since we perceive those laws by virtue of participating in that same intellect. But this is not an idea the philosophers of scientism would be willing to entertain. Let me now leave off the space-time continuum of physics and come to the soul's qualitative and lived experience of these realities we call space and time. Space and time appear to us to be two modes of extension, or in simpler terms, two ways in which things are spread out in relationship to each other. Spatially, things are here and there, and temporally, things are before and after. In another essay on Mullah Sadra, I discussed at length this notion of space and time as extension, and I don't want to duplicate the discussion here. Uh, my purpose here is to establish a link between space and time that is not at all based on relativity theory, but arises from our living experience. Although in the classical conception, which so often dominates our minds, space and time are seen as two separate and unlike things. The truth, the truth is that time is impossible without space, and space is impossible without time. I do not make this assertion from the point of view of physical theory, but from, or from science, but from within the world of the metaphysics of Ibn Arabi and similar metaphysical systems. Let us first ask what the world would be like if there were only space but no time. The first thing that we would notice is that change would become impossible. Think of a group of objects existing in space and then think of them existing in a different arrangement. In order for them to go from the first arrangement to the second one, something has to happen. They have to, at the very least, traverse the distance between the two arrangements. But how can they do that if there's only space and no time? Something has to ontologically link the two arrangements. Even if somehow they do not traverse the distance in between, the objects are still the same objects. And the only thing allowing us to call them the same objects in the two different arrangements 
is a reality that allows the objects to change but retain some kind of continuity. This connecting dimension is time. Let us then ask what the world would be like if there were time but no space. Since there would be no spatial extension to observe, we would somehow have to measure time with our subjective experience in the absence of height, width, and depth. But how would we then know there was even a course of time? Feelings have no dimension, perhaps. But what about the rest of the soul? The images in our imagination, never mind the objects of the objective world, all have spatial extension. So we would have to disallow them in a world without space. That is to say, time implies a kind of inward space in the soul, a different kind of space to be sure, which makes it meaningful to speak of before and after. Or, that is to say, there's a kind of a referent that is a constant in the face of change. For now, just provisionally, let us try and erase the words space and time for a moment from our minds and come back at the question. We notice that in life there are things that change and things that stay the same. And often the very same things seem to change and stay the same but in different respects. The baseball is the same baseball, both in the hand of the pitcher and in the hand of the catcher. But it is not wholly the same because some things about it are different, such as its location and its relationship to the things around it. We can talk about things that are constant and changing or static and dynamic. And in Arabic, the relevant terms are qar and ghayr al-qar. But I don't want to encumber myself from the beginning with technical terminology. For now, I simply want to have the constant and the changing. I, too, am constant and changing. I am the same person, but I am always becoming this or that, experiencing all sorts of colors and sounds and shapes in addition to my emotions. And yet the constant identity abides. In the statement, I was sad, then I found my true love, and then I was happy. The then does not split the I into parts. It does not erase the identity. Such paradoxes of the many in the one and the one in the many really form the basis of Ibn Arabi's metaphysics and make a good point of departure for an analysis of time and non-time. At the highest level, the mystery of the many and the one is the identity between the ultimate reality and the many things we usually think of as being real in and of themselves. The ontological status of things in relation to the ultimate reality is a question for metaphysics. But the mystery of the many in the one also plays out in cosmology, meaning the study of the world in which the puzzles of constancy and change arise. At the highest level of Akbarian thought, the manyness of the divine qualities is resolved in the unity of the supreme self, of the supreme essence. This is not a unity of before and after, where I might say that all are happening right now. Nor is it a unity of here and there, where I might say that all are in one place. Rather, it is a unity of being, of identity. The Creator is not another being than the just or the all-merciful. Al-Khaliq is not different from Ar-Rahman or from Ar-Rahim. They are unified in what they truly are. And mysteriously, the world's illusory reality disappears in the face of this essential unity. Now, Akbarians do not throw away manyness. They never throw away manyness. But they put it in its place. And from our point of view in the world, the many divine qualities and their relationships to one another are of the greatest significance. The manyness of the qualities is unreal only for the Supreme Self, only for the Supreme Essence. It's only for God that the manyness is unreal. But for us, this manyness is as real as we are, so to speak. In fact, we depend on this manyness for whatever illusory reality we possess because it is by virtue of the divine names and qualities and their relationships that the world comes to be. How then does this one in the many or the many in the one play out in the world? 
there is no shortage of ideas in Ibn Arabi and his school uh, to describe how divine qualities give rise to the world. Some of the most important are emanation or faith, self-disclosure, tajalli, uh, the process of determination or identification or ta'iyun. But for this talk, I want to use the symbolism of light and the divine name light or an-nur. Mystics and philosophers have often started with light. And its symbolism is so powerful because light is both what we see and what we see by. Light is both a means and an end. If we apply the symbolism of light to all knowledge, light is both what we know and how we know. It is, moreover, a symbol that Ibn Arabi and his school often used as a metaphysical basis, the same way they could use the concepts of mercy, or rahmah, and of course, wujud, uh, which you could translate as existence. The Quran says that God is the light of the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth are the realm of the constant and the changing. So let us say that God is the light of the constant and the changing, making God what we know the constant and the changing by. This leads us to ask what the constant and the changing are. Each and everything ultimately is a manifestation of a name of God. God knows his endless names. God knows his endless names and this knowledge is the realm. This very knowledge is the realm of the immutable identities, which is my translation for al-ayyana thabata, which Shirik, for example, translates as fixed entities and which I translate as immutable identities. Uh, each immutable identity is a special way in which God knows God. But God's knowledge of himself is neither before and after, nor here and there. It introduces neither distance nor duration between his names. But if the identities are essences or forms in the knowledge of God that are separated neither by distances nor durations, how do we get to the situation where these identities, when they are in the world, do get separated by distance and duration? In God's knowledge, the identities are immutable. But in the world, they are what we are calling constant and changing. They are here and there. They are before and after. The baseball is here, not over there. Or the baseball is here now, but it was not here earlier. This does not happen in God's knowledge. The immutable identities are different, but not apart. There is an immutable identity for the pitcher and an immutable identity for the catcher. But they exist eternally in God's act of knowing, fused but not confused, to borrow Meister Eckhart's language. Akbarian cosmogenesis is a two-tiered emanation or self-disclosure which first give, gives rise to the immutable identities in God's knowledge and then externalizes them or existentiates them in the world. There is a way in which these two identities, one manifest and the other unmanifest, are two different things. But there's another way in which they are simply the same thing viewed from two different perspectives. When God's light illuminates the immutable identities, which we can reword and say when God as the light meets with God as the knower, the result is the world. In a sense, the immutable identities are dark because as independent beings, they are nothing. They are only God's knowledge of himself. The divine light is a gift that illuminates the identities and gives them their own reality. This light allows there to be something other than God, Masiw Allah, this phrase, other than God, being Ibn Arabi's definition of the world. Because by being illuminated, the identities can see each other and see themselves. And by see, I mean know and to have knowledge. Now, in the world, this light, this divine light by which we are illuminated to each other, 
is none other than the very realities of duration and distance. What we give the name space is a state of affairs where the forms of things exist in a kind of relationality to each other, separated and yet existing in the same domain and thus connected in a kind of continuum. What we give the name time is a state of affairs where forms exist in a different kind of relationality, where even a single given thing is able to be is able to be separated from its previous state and still be connected to those states by virtue of its being a single thing. Thus, its states also exist in a kind of continuum. God's light in static mode is space, and his light in dynamic mode is time. The identities themselves are not space and time, for the identities, the ayan, are pure forms in the knowledge of God. But when God casts his light upon them, they enter into the dance of spatial and temporal interaction we call the world. This light enables the realities of sound, color, shape, smell, feeling, number, mass, energy, to connect and manifest these forms, these identities. Light is the vessel, both in static and dynamic mode, upon which the identities journey, in between the plenary darkness of God's knowledge on the one hand, and the uninhabitable darkness of pure nothingness on the other. This is one possible understanding of the divine saying, which Ibn Arabi comments often upon, do not curse time, or not Zaman in this case, but Dahan, for I am time. By cursing time, we are in reality cursing the light of God, which is identical with himself. It is by God giving of himself, of his light, that our existence as beings going through these changing states is even possible. But to open a parenthesis here, it then follows that one could also say that God is space. Islamic metaphysics does not have, to my knowledge, a classification of space similar to the one it has of time. As I'm sure it may be discussed uh, later in the conference, there is a distinction made between Sarmad, Dahr, and Zaman in Islamic metaphysics, or what can be translated as eternity, sempaternity, and ordinary time as we know it. But if what I am saying about the divine light is true, is it not equally true then to say that God is space and that we can make similar metaphysical distinctions spatially and also temporally? Okay, so I'm closing the parentheses. In the bodily world, the divine light, that is in the bodily world, the corporeal world, the world of bodies, the, world, the divine light shines in a certain mode, but far short of all the possibilities of divine illumination. The light is relatively dim, and though I see myself and others, I cannot see much. And the wholeness and connectedness of things is largely hidden in a darkness which is yet to be illuminated. The possibilities of this world, of this world of bodies, are basically limited, at least in our ordinary experience, to the dimensions, to the usual dimensions of space and time. Akbarian metaphysics teaches that the imaginational world, or the intermediate world, al-alam al-khayal, or alam al-mithal, is more illuminated. Uh, this and this world is ontologically superior to the world of bodies. In that world, the rules governing the constant and the changing, or the rules governing distance and duration, are not the same. Remember that the imaginational world, like the world of bodies, is still a world of extension, which is to say that it is a world of manifested forms, of shapes, colors, durations, and changing states. But because it is so luminous, the possibilities for the interaction of the constant and the changing are much greater. The forms in the imaginational world are, in, are indeed not limited by bodily space and time, but, the, but there is an imaginational space and an imaginational time. 
Recalling the saying that the bodily world, uh, recall the saying that the bodily world in relation to the imaginational world is like a ring tossed into a vast wilderness. This is something that you often find in Sufi writings. Jalaluddin Rumi declared that there is a window between hearts, meaning that we are connected to each other at the level of our souls, both across space and across time. True believers can have dreams for telling the future, and great saints can meet in spirit, if not body. These wonders do not take place by virtue of bodily existence, but by virtue of the imaginational world, the world of souls, and its own unique laws of space and time. Not only do the conditions of space and time change from bodily to imaginational existence, but they also change from this world to the next, from the dunya to the akhirah. That is what Dawud al-Qaysari means when he says that there are some divine names whose governance of the world only lasts for a certain duration. That is to say, there is a certain way in which the divine light manifests the forms of, of our ordinary earthly life. But at the end of the world, the cycle of that kind of light, of that particular divine name, will come to a close. The hereafter will then be governed by another divine name, another kind of divine light. That which is impossible here will be possible there because the divine light will illuminate ever more possibilities for the interplay of forms and identities. Space itself will be greater and more infinite. Time itself will be infused with greater barakah, with greater blessing and potential for realizing the self-disclosures of God. Thus far I have been discussing the ontological status of time and its linkage with space, because I think the two are inseparable insofar as they are two modes of the divine light as far as worldly existence is concerned. But what about the reality of time and the spiritual journey of the soul? If we take Ibn Arabi's metaphysics and cosmology to their logical conclusion, I believe we can say the following. God created us as a freely given gift, simply so that we who were not could be that we who were nothing could be living beings. But at the same time, God experiences all of our pains and our joys, our stupidity and our wisdom, our fear and our courage with us in a mysterious way. In the chapter on Job in the Fasus, Ibn Arabi references the Quranic verse which refers to those who hurt God and his messenger. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُؤْذُونَ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ it's literally there. There's no question about the Arabic that this is what's being said. Those who hurt God and his messenger. And of course that hadith um, where in, in the divine voice, I was sick and you did not visit me. Yet for God there is no pain, stupidity or fear because God is not confined to the moment of suffering. He knows the whole life. God does not move down the line with us as we do. Although he lives what we live, God could never suffer as we suffer because for God there is no despair and no hopelessness. Hopelessness is the most human of sufferings. For God, the pain is like the pain of separation we feel at the moment we are running to meet our beloved. We are in fact separated. And the effect of running and the distance between us is a kind of suffering. But that suffering is totally redeemed by the hope we have, the certitude that we have in the meeting with our beloved. The pain that God experiences with us is like the pain we experience while running to our beloved. It is not really a pain at all. It is a part of the fullness of the moment. God sees our life when we cannot, and the abundance and perfection of our destiny in a way so perfectly complete that the so-called suffering is ever blessed and redeemed in the final reunion. We are not God, though. 
And so for us, the experience of pain is not the same. But it is what it must be for a being, for a being God created for joy. When we become more like God, we suffer more the way in which God, quote-unquote, suffers. We gradually experience and taste how death is just a flavor of life. Within us, God is always running to the Beloved, which means that God is always running towards God. He lives the separation in the total light of reunion or union, death in the light of life, pain in the light of total bliss. We may think that we are just stamping our feet out of breath, running to a horizon that never seems to come closer, but we are growing still. To turn a nothing into a something like God is going to have to hurt sometimes, ripping open nothingness and pulling out a God-like being, strand by strand, sinew by sinew, love by love, pain by pain, stupidity by stupidity, into bliss, wisdom, wholeness, and even greater life. Think of a pebble in the shoe of a running lover. If that lover had placed all his hope in a perfect shoe, a perfect foot to go in that perfect shoe with a perfect sock, all to create a perfect fit. If he longed for it and made it his great hope, a pebble in his shoe while he was running would crush him, reduce him to anger, despair, agony, and humiliation. But what does a true lover care about a pebble in his shoe? Does he even feel it? Would he care? Perhaps it would even make an even fonder memory or fonder experience of the reunion. Now the Quran promises that in paradise the believers shall neither fear nor grieve, meaning that the light of God will so illuminate us we shall see the beauty of all things past and of all things that may come. That may come. It is in the darkness and opacity of the past, the inability to grasp the greater harmony of what happens to us, that causes the pain of grief. In grief we suffer from the past. In fear we suffer from the future. When God's light shows us the way, we suffer from neither. The Quran does not deny the passage of time in paradise, only the difficulties we experience from it on account of the worldly conditions. Our memory is illuminated and causes us no more trouble. In our imagination, that faculty capable of reaching out into the future can conceive of no cause for despair or hopelessness. The ignorance built into the darkness of the world simply cannot exist in the full light of God in paradise. It is thus that the soul transcends time, not by leaving it, but by conquering it. And this is how I understand the idea that they shall neither fear nor grieve. Our destiny in this world is both static and dynamic, which is to say that we are a harmony of parts and experiences of aspects and states. We can understand easily that beauty in the spatial sense is the presence of unity and multiplicity, which is to say of, of harmony in all its forms. Music is the classical example of dynamic harmony, of a harmony that not only exists statically, in a chord, for example, but also dynamically, in a progression of counterpoint and in the movements of a melody. If the soul can conquer time and live in it in paradise, what about here in this world? What enables us to wake up to the harmony of our destiny in this world and the next? Surely we must acknowledge that an awakening is called for because we, do not, because we actually do grieve and fear. We grope about in the dark while falling prey to unhappiness and despair. How can we become like God and experience reunion within separation? The Sufis indeed speak of taking on the divine qualities, al-ittisaf bi sifatillah, taking God's qualities as your own. 
And this is done through the remembrance of God, the dhikr in all its forms. It is through the dhikr that the light of God shines brighter and brighter upon the soul, transforming it and purifying it. A Sufi sheikh has said that when the traveler, the mystical traveler, looks back upon his life, he will see the dhikr, the remembrance of God, as a kind of golden chain passing through his states and experiences, and everything else will kind of fall away into a kind of darkness. This means that through the remembrance, practiced faithfully, the Sufi overcomes the vicissitudes of time. And this brings us finally to the dimension of non-time, which from, the man's, which from man's point of view, both in the spiritual life and in the hereafter, is the spirit, or the heart, or the intellect, all names of the same reality. The heart or spirit or intellect is the point in man where the divine light resides and can shine down into the soul. It is, this, it is the mysterious divine spark, both created and uncreated, or as some would say, neither created nor uncreated. The spiritual life is the wedding of the soul to the spirit, not the elimination of the soul. Remember that by virtue of being made in the image of God, we all possess an intrinsic dimension of light ourselves. The illumination we receive is truly just an aspect of our own nature, of our own identity, as Ibn Arabi says so clearly in the Fasus and in his other writings. In the spiritual life, in the remembrance of God, the spirit or heart acts upon the soul, illuminating it, transforming it, untying its knots, turning it clear where it once was opaque. From the point of view of time, progress is made in tying together our temporal selves with our non-temporal selves, so that the former can be transfigured by the latter. When the non-time or eternity of the spirit enters fully into the soul, the Sufi becomes Ibn al-Waqt, newly born in each moment. Wallahu a'lam. Thank you.